Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brand, a certified functional medicine practitioner practicing worldwide. If you need help, I've got a full list of conditions at my website, evanbrand.com. You can check that out and you can also reach out and schedule a 15-minute free call with my staff. We'll chat with you about your symptoms and goal and see if we can help you. Uh, we're going to talk with Daniel Vitalis today, a friend of mine, great guy. He's really, really motivated me to get involved with getting more connected to my food, which I felt like I was already doing, but now sourcing my own food, going out to the woods and bringing my food back. You know, he's motivated me to do that, which has been just a blast whenever I get the time away from the wife and the kids, of course, to be able to do that. So Daniel Vitalis is the host of Wild Fed. Uh, for 10 years, he lectured around North America and abroad, offering workshops to help others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. Uh, he's a ses- uh, successful entrepreneur. He founded a nutrition company called Survival back in 2008, and he hosted a podcast that he ended called Rewild Yourself. He's a registered Maine guide, a writer, a public speaker, interviewer, and lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness both inside and out. After learning to hunt, fish, and forage as an adult, he created Wild Fed to inspire others to start a wild food journey of their own. So without further ado, let's get into the show with Daniel. I think you'll really enjoy this. If you're somebody who thinks you're going to be bored listening to us talk about hunting and uh, foraging your own food and all that, just give us some time. Just hang in there. I think you'll end up at the end being very happy that you enjoyed this episode. All right, let's get into it. Daniel Vitalis, thanks for joining me. Hey, man, it's really good to be back here. Yeah, it's been maybe two or three years, and you've been up to some good stuff, and I've been up to some good stuff, so I'm glad to reconvene and sit around the fireplace with you. Uh, People don't see the video because we're just doing audio, but Daniel's got a fireplace in the background, and he looks nice and cozy. He's up in Maine. He's been putting together a show called Wild Fed, which uh, I was very fortunate to get a sneak preview of, and I'm absolutely blown away at the production quality and what he's done, which is document his journey as a modern hunter-gatherer and connect people, you all listening, to your food and to your planet and to your ecosystem. So let's dive in, man. I think we should talk about your iguana adventure because (laughs) that was a trip. Uh, Yeah, what do you think about that? Oh, man. Well... I think the same thing that I think about the alligator episode, which is, okay, you've got all these iguanas. Let's set the stage for people. You've got all these, and interrupt me wherever necessary. But. Well, yeah, let me let me set the stage, and okay. if you wouldn't mind, okay, let me just say this. I was down in Florida for, uh, you know, as you know, I had my podcast, Rewild Yourself, for, for about three years, about 178 episodes. And uh, that show, I didn't really intend to start off doing a podcast. I was writing a sort of online magazine, and I thought it would be cool to make it multimedia, so I'd throw some interviews in there. And I had like maybe 6,000, 8,000 people were really reading because I was writing my ass off. I was writing, yeah, I don't even know what, probably 10,000 words on every issue. I did eight of them. And uh, they come out every two months, and so a little, little less than that. So people were reading it, but lots of people were listening to the interviews. And before I knew it, it was like, oh, the podcast took off and the magazine just, you know, not many people wanted that, like that depth of, of article. And, uh, before I knew it, I had this podcast and I was always feeling a little behind the gun because it was like, I didn't set out to do the podcast. So it was always like scrambling behind it, you know, if that makes sense. Cause like it just suddenly happened, you know? And, uh, and then I shut that podcast down in 2016, things got 
I thought things really changed in the United States. I would say we'll look back and be like, oh, yeah, 2016 when the Civil War started in the United States, you know. And everything that I had been talking about now had all this like because the show was a lot about how do we look at hunter gatherer peoples and emulate some of their successes in our modern lives. That was my kind of interest. And um, things changed so much that a lot of what I was talking about sounded like it was tinged with political overtones that I'd never intended. And I was like, I got to back out of this and reassess. Yeah, I was wondering why you quit that. Yeah. And it was a successful show, but I, you know, I, I stopped and that was, I'm somebody who always does those kind of things. I'll break those kind of rules, you know, and I stepped back from that show. And during that time, I went deep into this idea of hunting and gathering. That was happening as a result of the interviews I was doing. I was getting more drawn into foraging and hunting and fishing and such for my food because I was kind of like, put your money where your mouth is. Like talking all this ancestral stuff, it's like, well, and my interest being in food primarily and nutrition, it was like, wow, this is the right direction for me. But also another thing that was going on was that show was starting to get leaned towards this hunting and gathering thing, which was not the intention of the show. And I was like, it's getting a little off brand and a little niche. And I just needed some time off. So I took two years away from podcasting. What did that and, feel like? Because I've been doing it for, this is my seventh year. And wow. I can't even imagine what a break would be like. I'd be so lost, I feel like. I'm so used to the <laughs> to the upload. And, right, you know, to right. like, like I, I, it's like part of my weekly routine. Just like you poop and you wipe your butt, I, I put up a podcast, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was, I felt a little out of touch. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about having the opportunity to podcast is that you feel like you're in a conversation with this amazing audience of people who really dial into the stuff you're talking about. I mean, you know, what you talk about is like a like a sieve and or screen and through that screen fall the people who are interested in the things you're interested in. Right. And it eventually filters out people that don't really care about your interests. Right. So you, you sort of filter down a group of people and you guys are all in this conversation and suddenly I wasn't in that conversation. But what I was doing with that time was working on WildFed. Um, and what I, I guess how I got to this part of the conversation is just in saying that the last show felt like I was always running behind it, trying to maintain it. And now I'm out ahead of it. Nice. So I took two years to, I was still making shows and I've been saving those shows up. Uh, so the podcast audio shows uh, that are right now live, you know, as WildFed on all the podcast networks and then our platforms. But I was also making the video show, which you're talking about now, the TV show. And um, that was just born out of me connecting with a videographer, a producer named uh, Grant Giuliano. And, and we kind of have become fast friends. And he said, why don't you start filming some of what you're doing? And I was like, man, I'm a new hunter. Like nobody's who's going to want to watch that. And then as over time, I started realizing, well, there's all these people who want to get started. And it's very difficult to get started when you're 30, 40 years old and you've never hunted or fished, it's like a very overwhelming for most people foraging. It's like very overwhelming. So, so we said, all right, let's try it, you know, and every episode we go out and we hunt something or, or we fish something and then we gather something too. And then we bring that food as you've seen to a chef or cook and we create meals out of it. And, uh, this has been just tremendously fun. So anyway, backing up, I was down in Florida for a business trip. Um, my business partner and I, for my supplement company, Sir Thrival, decided to go fishing together. And we went down to the Keys and there was like just so much wind and seas were so high that our fishing trip got canceled. And it was, I mean, you couldn't even sit on the beach. The wind was just like the sand would, you know, peel your skin off kind of a thing, you know, so much sustained wind. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I was planning on, I brought a cooler down. I was planning on coming back with a bunch of fish to pack my freezer with. And I kept seeing green iguanas in the trees. And I knew green iguanas because I had one as a pet when I was a kid. 
And I stop into this fishing shop and I say, you know, hey, does uh, anybody know anything about hunting iguanas? Is that even a thing here? And this guy steps out, Jim. He's, you know, introduces himself and he says, uh, you know, tell me about what you're interested in. And we start talking. And before I know it, he says, you know, why don't you meet me tomorrow? Takes me out in his truck, loans me his iguana hunting snare and brings me around the island, starts showing me all these places. Well, what I had uncovered uh, the night before doing some research was that ing green iguanas are invasive to Florida. Florida's got a big problem because their climate will allow all of these invasive species from tropical areas to set up shop there. You know, species that make their way there on boats or released by people from the pet trade or however they get out, right? Zoos that flood during a hurricane and animals escape. All these animals can, you know, up here where I live in Maine, it's like they would just die off eventually. You wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> might, might survive part of the summer, but Florida now has more invasive reptiles than native reptiles. Have you seen this whole, not to get too off subject, but have you seen that they have that Python management program where they pay you? A certain amount and the longer the Python the more money you get so yeah, there's a system yeah bounty so, system so there's people I saw there was a 19 foot 19 foot long Python that this like couple they just went out with a little bow we're just paddling in the Everglades and then boom they got this 19 foot Python somehow. <laughs> I'm really interested in this I'm, I'm working on an episode around it and um, yeah, the Python thing's pretty fascinating and it's a great example of what we're talking about. Now I want to say this is where it gets a little different between the Python and the iguana. The iguana is, is largely a vegetarian animal and the Python is a carnivorous animal. And so when you're dealing with reptilian carnivores in somewhat polluted, uh, waterways, you've got different issues than you do with green iguanas. Um, so you got this iguana is a bit more like a squirrel, right? It's a chicken of the trees is called in some places. So anyway, Florida is doing, so, you know, there's no bounty on them, but similarly to what you were just talking about, Florida's now said, you're welcome to come here and hunt them. You don't need a hunting license. You know, you just have to follow trespassing laws and you must dispatch the iguanas humanely. You can't be doing kind of like weird antics with them, uh, but you are allowed to harvest them. In fact, it's encouraged because they're, they're tearing up a lot of infrastructure. They damage habitat for native fauna. So my friend taught me how to hunt them with a snare. Uh, that's our technique. We use what's like a converted fishing rod with a snare on the end, you know, something like about eight, nine, 10 feet long. And I go around wrangling up iguanas, as you saw in that episode, and uh, I smoke them, and I take that meat home, and that's a food for us that we eat every year here. And now, how does iguana taste? That's always a question, right? You know, you know the answer. I haven't had iguana. You know the answer to every everybody. Yeah, everybody. Knows everybody the says they chicken tastes like chicken. And it really, they really does. are like they're a white meat. So, for me, as somebody who eats game uh, pretty exclusively, uh, you know, I, I should back up. I don't eat exclusively game, but when I'm home, I eat exclusively game. You know, we go out to restaurants or eat at friends' houses or something. But, but in my house, like all the foods game meat. So you start thinking about, and you look at the typical American omnivorous diet and you have sort of your red meat, which is going to be beef. If you're a white meat, which is typically going to be chicken, right? And then you have like a handful of fishes that people will eat. And that's like typical proteins in someone's house, right? They don't, they might have turkey once a year at Thanksgiving or maybe a second time at Christmas, but pretty much white meat is going to be chicken. Well, in our house, white meat could be squirrels, white meat could be grouse, white meat could be wild turkey, white meat could be iguana. You've got all these different meats that fill that same role. Uh, so, the, you know, saying it tastes like chicken, you could just flip that around and be like chickens taste like, you know, iguanas. I mean, it's just that they fit in that same category. They're definitely not a red meat. They're, they're a white meat like, like a lot of small game is. 
but um, yeah, they're they're it's I really enjoy the process of hunting them and. Um, it's neat to hunt so openly there, as you saw, like I do a lot of it in the urban environment. It was cool. It was like a little urban hunt. All right. So here's <laughs> the hard part for me when I, when I watch through and I'm thinking, okay, hunter gather. Yes. I want to be hunter gatherer. I want all my game to be exclusive. Realistically, how do you do that? If you're only allowed, like in Maine, I think you said you're only allowed like one deer per, is it per, per hunting season? Yeah, with some exceptions, right? So you could have so Maine is a state with very limited deer harvest because we have a limited deer herd. You where you live, you buy a, a big game hunting license and it probably comes with multiple deer tags. How many? It's unlimited. So yeah, yeah, we, yeah. I, I, I so cool. when you and I were texting, I was That's telling so cool. you that we we have four million people in the state of Kentucky and an estimated one million um, deer herd. And then, wow. and, and then, uh, on the Eastern side now, because of the elk reintroduction program that started in 97 or 99, mm-hmm. now there's 15,000 elk and they're so Do huge. You have that many now, huh? Yeah. They're so huge because our winters are not as cold as out West. And right, so right. these people are seeing what, 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 what the species is. It's the Rocky mountain elk rather than the Eastern elk, which was bigger, but the size of the Rocky mountain elk here are as big as the eastern elk uh, used to be. They start to genetically diverge a little bit based on on the environment. So yeah, that's really interesting. Hard to get a tag for them though, huh? Yeah, eighty thousand people apply. You get eight hundred people. You know, get get a get a tag, and and I apply every year. Or if you wanna, if you got some cash, you can buy a tag somehow. Big cash though. Fifteen thousand bucks for a tag. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think is important for people to know as we're having this conversation is just, you know, and we talked about this on your show in the past, but how hunting dollars, especially money spent on tags, goes to conservation, usually that species or or in general, um, into the state fund for that. So you know, one of the nice things about you buy that tag every year, you don't draw, but that money go gets, you know, used for conservation. And that's like such an important, or, you know, here in Maine, like a lot of our hunting uh, tag money goes into, you know, the field biology work and all that stuff. So it's like a really good way for people to give back. I think people like talk the talk, you know, about conservation, but you know, it's like hunters really put their money up, you know, and um, I think that's really important. So it's cool that you do that. Um, yeah. So in Maine, I can only get one deer per year. I can have, uh, you know, there's some exceptions out at the coast and there's a few other areas, uh, but we are limited in that, you know, um, in order to eat all game, I have to be pretty crafty. So, you know, we have moose up here, but drawing a moose tag is sort of, uh, you know, they issue about 2000 of them a year. So, um, you know, I've waited and waited. I haven't drawn one. I was on a moose hunt this year as a sub permittee, which was really cool. So I ended up with some moose meat. My buddy, Justin drew a tag. Uh, we had a successful hunt. Uh, I hunt black bears, and so they're a major part of our diet. You know, and I live uh, sort of on the border of Maine and New Hampshire, so I can deer hunt both states and get a deer in each place, and I can get a bear in each place, and I can get you know spring turkeys, and I can get fall turkeys, and then there's squirrel hunts and duck hunts and geese, and you know you start to pile all these things in, and then oh, I do a lot of fishing. So the way it works in my house would be like, hey, baby, what are you feeling like tonight? You know, like uh, bear, deer, moose, turkey or fish, you know, and because it's that thing, too, where it's like if you eat you eat venison a few nights in a row, you kind of don't want to eat venison again. Then you might want fish or you want a turkey and, you know, you kind of we cycle them through. But I get real crafty to have more deer. One of the things I do is I work with a farmer who he grows pumpkins and deer eat his pumpkins. And so he's issued a certain number of nuisance tags that the state gives him and he can have a hunter come in and night hunt and actually take out some of those deer. And so out of that herd. 
So that's work I'll do, and I'll get three deer a year doing that. And then I work with um, the county dispatch, and they'll call me about fresh roadkill. So if somebody hits a deer, there's an accident, um, you know, the record comes, or the ambulance sometimes, I mean, whatever has to happen, right? Sometimes the ambulance, people get hurt sometimes in this. Uh, and they need to get that deer off the road too. And so I'll get a call, and I'll come in, and if that deer's in really good shape, you know, sometimes they just get struck in the head, and all of the meat is as good as if I had hunted it. Um, <clears throat> still warm, fresh, you know, I'm not talking about rotting, you know, meat on the side of the road here. I'm talking about fresh kills. I'll take those deer and process them into food. If they're damaged badly, I turn them into dog food because my dog eats game too. So, you know, I make all my dog food here at home as well. So, you know, last year I probably took maybe eight roadkill. I took probably five deer through hunting various ways. Um, so, you know, I make it happen and, uh, and we, you know, we have plenty to give away too, which is really important to me. That's good. It adds up because, you know, I was like looking at the numbers. I'm like, I mean, I love the conservation rules. You have to have these in place for the populations to thrive and survive and continue on for future generations of hunters. But when you look at, let's say you can get one bear and then you could get, you know, let's say, let's just say two deer and two bear. It's like, could you, could you feed, you know, a family of four? That's the hard part. It's almost like is it a 150-pound bear or is it a 500-pound bear? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> right? how big do the black Something bears get about. up there? I shot one this year, which is the biggest black bear I've encountered. Um, you know, in North Carolina, I've seen some big bears. But um, but for me, running into a bear up here, the biggest bear I've encountered was this one this year. So gutted, he weighed 485 pounds. So he was probably pushing 600 live weight. I would say so that's a really big bear but now your typical bear is going to be in the 150 to 200 zone maybe even 125 to 200 you know and I've got a lot you can see behind me all those skulls up there on that uh, mantle yeah those are all you know smaller bears but this bear's skull is three times the size of any of those so I'll get two of those a year though right two two small bears that's quite a bit of food and if you're lucky to get a really fat bear that's a lot of oil too you know because all our cooking oil is bear fat and uh, primarily at least. And, and so that oil is calorically is as rich as the meat, probably richer, probably do more calories in bare fat than I do in bare meat. But yeah, like if you start adding it up, man, and like I said, if you can start to get multiple deer, you can start to, uh, do a little traveling, you know, it depends. I mean, I'm, I'm hitting it harder than most people really have the time, space, energy, money to do. I've been pretty blessed in the situation in that I've, you know, I work from home. I, you know, I have my own company. I'm an entrepreneur. So it's kind of freed me up to do a little bit more of this. So, you know, I'm not out there preaching a message like everybody needs to eat 100% wild food or anything. I know I certainly am not able to do it that way either. Uh, I just love the idea of be, people becoming, you know what it is? It's like ecological literacy. It's that most people you talk to, you realize pretty quickly if they're not somehow connected to hunting, fishing, or foraging in some way, or if they don't have some ecological background, you know, educationally, it's like people are, um, illiterate about nature. Absolutely. It's, it's sort of shocking. Even a lot of people who spend a lot of time in the outdoors. Oh, I believe it. I mean, if you go into the city here, I mean, you're going to see people on their phones scrolling on Instagram while they're sitting in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru or Krispy Kreme drive-thru. And it's like, <laughs> they have no idea what it's like to be in the middle of the woods, sitting by a creek, hearing the water run past you. And then you hear a polluted woodpecker or, mm -hmm. or you hear a gobble or you hear, I mean, even just a wood thrush. I just love the sound of the wood thrush. I mean, that's probably the most amazing multi-pitch sound 
that exists in the natural world, at least where I am, the sound of the wood thrush is haunting to me. It is. It is. It's 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 interesting you say haunting because the the first time that I I heard a wood thrush, it was in the middle of summer. I should have not been out there because I probably ended up getting a tick on me. But I was in, in in a pretty deep trail, and I kept hearing this sound. And luckily, I had my phone. I had this app where you could record sounds and upload it to this bird app. And I didn't know the wood thrush at the time, and I uploaded it, and it told me wood thrush. And so ever since I've, it almost gives me like a little bit of like anxiety uh, right, when I right hear at that. Dusk when I hear it, yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. that, that was that one day when I was in the oh, sun. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I ran out sure. of water. I was a mile and a half back from the car. Yeah, I had yeah. no water. What am I gonna do? I don't have a water filter. I don't want to get Giardia again and drink this creek. What do I do? <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. so with the bear meat, how do you get the oil? Yeah, so bears are like people in that they store up a lot of fat right under the skin above the meat, right? So they have this subcutaneous fat, and they sort of deplete that through the season, and then they build it up as they get ready to den. So I have harvested bears and seen bears. You know, this year I was um, I was on 10 bear harvests. So I saw like a pretty good range of bears this year. And sometimes you see them as lean as a deer, just like no fat on them. And other bears, um, I'm thinking of my friend Mark uh, from Louisville, actually, down where you are, came up and uh, got his first bear this year. And it was a sow weighed probably, two, I'd say, 275. So she was a good-sized one. But she was just round, absolutely round. She had accumulated so much fat that, um, I mean, I would guess we probably had 15 gallons of, of raw fat came off her body. So do you so – la- layers – oh, sc- let me explain. So you okay. take the hide off. And then you've got this pad of fat that can be four inches thick. And it's like butter in your hands. It's like somebody's handed you a stick of butter and it's melting in your hands. You know, it's, it's pure oil. Um, and so you just kind of cut that off. And then I bring that back. And I think, did you, were you able to watch the bear episode I sent over to you? I did not get to watch it. Oh, okay, so in that episode, we show that where I actually trim the fat up and I cube it sort of the size of ice cubes. And then I put that in a crock pot. And just sort of let it, just like you'd render, this is the same way you'd render duck fat or you'd render uh, lard from a pig. It's the same thing. It's quite a lot like how a pig stores its fat. Uh, so you, I cook that down and it liquefies and then I pour it through a filter and I just take away all of the solids that are the proteins that have, you know, denatured and cooked in that process. And I'm left with this like pure, beautiful oil. And the thing about a bear's fat is, bears are a very cool animal, man. I just, uh, I've got a podcast up right now. Uh, with a bear biologist named Ed Perkins, and she talks about some some bear physiology that's just mind blowing. Like here's an example: a bear, a black bear in the den, is not really hibernating. It's just in a torpor. It's asleep. But the guys that I know, well, not guys, the people I know, who do bear workups in the winter, where they go to um, known den sites and they they basically tranquilize, pull the bears right out of there so that they can measure them, get tooth samples. They, they're doing all these health surveys on bears in the main black bear project. So they say that you never roll up or very rarely roll up on a den where the bear is actually unaware that you're there. They're awake. Wow. They're hearing you. They're awake. So they're awake all year. I mean, they're not, it's not a real hibernation. And then they're, while they're in this sort of torpor and this sleep, their metabolism slows down tremendously, but they're burning that body fat up that they've stored. And while they're burning it, the metabolic byproduct is urea, right? They take that urea because they're not urinating or defecating while they're in the den. 
So they're taking that urea, which we would have to pee out as urine, and they recycle it into protein and rebuild their muscle while they sleep. So they don't come out of the den. So a spring bear is still a good eating bear because it still has all its muscle mass because they're able to make muscle out of what we would pee out. It's just a really cool, very cool animal, right? So uh, anyway, back to what I was saying before, one of the really neat things about bear fat, I'm looking at a bunch of it over my counter right now. It's this, it's not like lard. Uh, Lard is much more uh, stearic acid as as a lipid profile. Whereas what you have in bear fat is oleic acid. It's basically like olive oil. It's not, uh, it's not as solid as lard. It's much more of a gel. It's like a liquidy gel. You can pour it at room temperature. Um, even in the fridge, you know, you could still, if you get it real cold, you can still scoop it with a spoon, whereas lard tends to get like a little stiff. So it's this really like uh, nice monounsaturated mono fat. And, um, Quite a healthy oil. I mean, I love it. I mean, you can use it to cook in and you can also use it to make salad dressing if that kind of gives you a sense of it. It's super clean. It has no like negative flavor, no gamey flavor. It's so mild that nobody would ever know what it is if they tasted it. I cook for everybody in it. No one ever even asks. It just tastes great. And bear meat is probably the most underrated game meat on earth. I mean, it is absolutely delicious and hunters consistently say that it's, uh, you know, because a lot of hunters who hunt bears are not hunting bears for meat. They're hunting bears for hides. They're hunting bear for trophy or whatever. I hunt bears, you know, for food. I really love these animals, man. And uh, just, I really appreciate them, you know. So I eat, I eat them nose to tail. And um, yeah, the meat is is truly stunning. If you're used to venison, it's like you taste some, it's a lot more like beef, a lot more like beef, except it makes beef taste gamey. It's just a delicious meat. Whoa. So yeah, so I've got the fat and I've got the meat and I'm utilizing both of those. And you know, you keep the hides and you keep the skulls and you just are able to do a lot with these animals. And and then all the trim. So when I'm, you know, butchering my animals, all that trim, I save that up and I make dog food from it. So like just yesterday, I think I probably made about 75 pounds of dog food, grinding bear, deer, fish skins, fish frames, all the stuff I don't use. My dog loves that all, so that's that's her food. And you just keep it in the freezer, and then when she's ready to eat, you just thaw some out in the yeah, fridge? Yeah, so we, yeah, so we make it, and we do it in bags, like quart bags, and then, you know, you take one out every day to thaw, and you have another one that's already thawed out, and you just kind of keep the cycle going, and, and that's what she eats. See, people are always talking about trying to get the best dog food. That sounds like the best dog food to me. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. You know, it's occasionally we'll run out or, or I'll have all that meat, but I still need to, you know, I got to take a day to process it, you know, and I can make a couple months worth at a time. So sometimes you like run out and you got to like feed the dog something else and boy, she's like miserable, you know. The other thing is, is all the bones. So she eats a huge proportion of her diet as bones compared to, I'd say the average house dog. Cause she'll, man, she'll tear apart a deer skeleton. It's like, I'll take a sawzall, you know, and just cut the bones up into manageable pieces for her. And I mean, she'll completely eat ribs. There, there's nothing left. She'll completely eat scapula. Usually with a scapula, what you'll be left with is just a little bit of the socket. You know, with a pelvis, you'll get a little bit of the socket. That acetabulum will be left or something like that. But, um, you know, she'll break. And then with long bones like femurs or humerus, she'll break them right down till you just have some splinters left. But, you know, she actually physically eats them. Wow, um, what which kind is of really dog? neat to watch. Uh, she's a plot hound. You know, she's a plot hound. So she's a, a, a hunting dog um, that I think comes down from not far from where you are is where, where these dogs originate from. Interesting. See, I feel like the average person doesn't know that their dog is deficient in wild food just like they're deficient in wild food. Mm-hmm. They yeah. assume yeah. they go to the store and buy 
chicken meal, grain-free, with sweet potatoes and chickpeas and peas. I mean, have you seen the stuff that, like, quote, yeah. healthy dog food is? It's like yeah. wolves were not eating chickpeas and lentils <laughs> and Chickpeas beans. and lentils, yeah. Well, meat's expensive, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you were going to feed your dog exclusively on meat or if you've ever done, like, a raw diet for a dog before, it's quite – it's pretty pricey to do, you know? I mean, it can, it can be done and, and it's really good for dogs. It's interesting how there's a – you know, you have the, the – nutritional like diet scene for humans, the raw food scene for people who like to eat raw foods and juices and all that. But there's probably just as big a scene of dog people that do it for their dogs. So, you know, getting a feed now, some animals like bear, bear needs to be cooked through just like pig, you know? Um, so bear, I don't get to feed that to her raw. I'd love to, if I could, but I, I cook all that for her, but deer, like she eats that raw moose, she eats that raw, you know, a lot of fish. And for some reason, bear can harbor that trichinosis. That's the is that that's well, the it's condition. Not the, it's of... not about yeah. It's not about bears specifically. It's that things that eat animals. So you know when you've got a deer's like eating really. I mean, very rarely consuming. Now people don't realize that deer will consume. You know, if opportunistically will consume animals, but but typically they're going to be herbivorous. But animals that eat other animals, if an animal has trichinosis, which is a type of worm, that what ends up happening is you end up with the um, the kind of larval stage insisted in, in your tissue. And so if a person eats, let's say, undercooked pork and that pork has trichinosis, it's because the pork ate uh, ate their omnivores. They'll eat animal food and that animal food may be contaminated with trichinosis and so it'll be in the pork. And that's why you always have that recommendation to cook pork you know, at 165 or – or cook until its juices are clear, whatever those kind of rules. Uh, less common now, though. Uh, but if you got trichinosis, what ends up happening is now you're carrying it. So you'll get a little sick, you'll get better, and then you carry it. And then if something ate you, they would get trichinosis, right? Wow. So, so bears can have trichinosis just because they can have eaten something or scavenged something. So uh, in, you know, in lieu of a test that would confirm that, you know, the recommendation is always to cook them through. I did recently get to speak to Maine's black bear biologist of 37 years, Randy Cross, who's kind of a celebrity up here in Maine for the work he's done on black bears, um, research that he's done on black bears. Um, and he told me that when they would test black bears, that it was that it would, they'd never even actually had a positive. But I know Steve Ranella, the, the quite famous big game hunter um, and host of the show Meat Eater, he has trichinosis. Um, one of the episodes, they ate some that was a little rare, and everybody on the set ended up with uh, trichinosis. So he's a carrier, right? So if so if you know if a bear ate Steve Ranella, that bear would contract his trichinosis. If you I will. wonder. See, you know, I use I I work so much with different herbs, killing parasites and worms and things. I wonder if you could expel it and get it out somehow. If he used enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty. It gets through the tissues, you know, and it, and the amount that you have is based on the amount that you ate, right? So, uh, so yeah, I don't know if that's possible, but I, I've never, I've not heard anything about that. Um, people just, it sounds like it insists itself. And I know in your work, you're kind of familiar with once something's insisted, it's very difficult to get access to it, you know? So, it, well, it's interesting. You got a hold of the celebrity guy who is saying it's actually quite rare because that's yeah. the same issue with all of the bison where they're trying to expand their range out in Montana. Then you have all these cattle ranchers saying, well, oh, the bison are carrying such and such disease. I can't remember the disease off the top of my head. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's a respiratory illness, I believe. I need I to look it up about. and see what it's called, like bison disease. But that's why they're not letting them roam, because mm -hmm. they're saying, oh, they have this disease. Oh, bru brucellosis? Yeah, brucellosis, yep, yep. It, yeah, and, and so 
when you look at the test, it, it's one of those things where it's kind of rare, but there's this fear out there. It's almost like it's almost like society is scared of rewilding. Well, it's not that it's scared. I wouldn't say it's scared of it. It's at odds with it. Civilization's at odds with wildness. That's what civilization is. So civilization is by nature not wildness, right? So civilization is by nature a group of agriculturalists living together and creating city-states. And the way that they do that is to consume natural resources to create artificial environments and built environments. And, you know, they don't subsist on foods from the wild. They subsist on agricultural foods. And so it's at odds with the wild. That's one of the things that I spent, you know, like I said before, you know, after three years of doing my podcast, I got to where, you know, I said how it started to feel like it was a, touching on political themes. And that's because, like, when you get deep into the philosophy of this stuff, you're starting to look at um, where humans diverged from the natural world, which is about 10, 11,000 years ago when we started to use agriculture as a way of feeding ourselves. And when we did that, we opened a Pandora's box and a lot of problems have emerged out of that model. But that's the model we all live in, right? And there's only a handful of people left in the world who aren't living in those models. We call those people like they're the people of the uncontacted tribes. Uh, where there are still some like truly wild humans existing in wild nature, but they're almost gone. And this has been like unfolding for 11, 12, 13, 14,000 years now. And it's this almost complete revolution of human beings being divorced from wildness. And civilization has always been at odds with wildness. You know, it, it basically stomps out wildness and replaces it. This is one of the interesting things about like a vegan diet, because vegans don't understand sometimes that well, their food has to come from a place because people are divorced from place, man. That's the interesting thing about hunting, fishing, and foraging is you start to get your food from a place. When you go to the supermarket, that's just a depot, but the place that the food comes from is kind of unknown to you, or it might be like a country name, but not a place. People who drink wine are still kind of connected to place, right? So that'll be mm. the sommelier comes around and, and it's not just this is wine. They don't come to your table and go, this is wild wine from France. They come and they tell you about a specific vineyard on a specific hill that faces a specific direction with a certain type of soil, and it's all about the terroir of that wine, and that is the taste of that place. So at WildFed, we have this internal thing about, we call it being made of place. And I've had this sort of thing that's just kind of just uh, it's, it's like scratched away in my brain for years, like this tickle in my brain about this, where it's like, where, what are people made of? What place? Right? So you pull the average person aside and maybe their, their blood is made out of water from Fiji. You know, you dig, it's like yes. they're buying Fijian water to make their blood out of, and they're eating, uh, grass fed beef from New Zealand and they're eating apples from Peru and everything is coming from all this. Their body is made out of like 700 places and they're not familiar with any of those places. And so with, a, with no connection to place, it's very difficult to care about any particular part of the planet. Like to care about the environment is, is like this generic idea. Like, oh, I care about the environment. It's like, well, where's that <laughs> exactly? Where, what environment do you care about? Which one? Whereas, yeah, whereas if you drink wine from a specific region of France, from a specific hillside, you kind of care about that place, right? Well, when you hunt and fish and you forage, you start to care about places and, and you start to have a relationship to those places. And I think that's like really missing. So the average person's body is just made out of random assortment of stuff that showed up at the depot where they get their food. And 
And so one of the things I like about this lifestyle is like I can tell you where like what my body's made out of, like what place, you know, the terroir of the places where I get my food. I'm not really sure how we got to this part of the conversation, but it's a fascinating topic to me. Um, my goal is always to be made of places that I have relationships to. And I think that that makes somebody a really conscientious first line defender of a place. So you become this citizen ecologist who cares about the place where their deer comes from or their bears come from. So it's, that's the interesting thing. Oh, I was talking about vegans before and I was saying they're kind of divorced from place in that if they understood where their food was being grown, they would know that that arable land was habitat for something. So like you were talking before about bison not being able to freely roam. Well, that's because we use the arable lands. I mean, where the bison roamed is now where we grow corn and wheat and soy. And um, it's very difficult to let the bison roam if we still want to produce food for people, right? So you get this interesting challenge where somebody will be like, there's a kind of a self-righteousness. Well, my, no suffering happens for my food. No animals have to die for my food. And it's like, well, no animals have a place to live because of your food. Like, where are they going to live? Like, have you visited the place where your soybeans are coming from? Because that used to be habitat. Or are you familiar with people like me who hunt on that farm and kill the deer that are trying to eat that soy? Because animals are dying for it. You know what I mean? Like that live there. So it's just this interesting thing because we're all divorced from place. And so I feel like um, this act of hunting and gathering, whether it's just like once a year you and the family go out and get blueberries in a place or whether you're like me and it's like this hardcore passion where you're trying to like do as much of your food this way as you can. It just connects you back to a place. So even if like once a year you go out to harvest blueberries with the kids, you have a place that you care about. You have a place that individual cells and fluids in your body are made of. They came right off that landscape. And so when somebody says, wow, we're looking at a building, you know, a target over there, uh, you're going to be like, wait a second, that place means something to me. And where we're at right now is everybody's hearing, I mean, we're inundated with this guilt complex about what's happening to our environment. But because we're not tied to any particular place, it's very difficult for us to protect it. So it's like, it's one thing to hear about the fires in the Amazon or the clear cutting that's happening. Or it's one thing to hear about strip mines that get the materials for your iPhone. It'd be really different if that was the place where you hunt, fished, or foraged because you would you would want to stop that from happening. Um, where we're at right now is that nobody has a real connection, and so we're just letting it happen. And so Greta can get up and yell at us all day long, but it's like, Greta, I don't have a connection to place. What do I do? Absolutely. You know? That's such a trip. That's such an amazing idea. You you said it so eloquently. I mean, I just picture the monoculture that we have around here. You know, that's part of the reason that I want to move again, even though I just moved, is I didn't realize that I was surrounded by monoculture. I should have studied the, the maps a little bit better, and there's some acre value websites you can look at to, like, study the crop history of your area. I mean, I've got so much soybean and corn around here. It's ridiculous. And and I, and I, I miss... I miss the woods, you know, I miss, even though I have trees and even though I, I go to the forest and I just, I long for it. It's almost like, you know, the trees don't have emotion. So the human has to have the emotion for the trees. And when I go back in the woods and is this me manifesting it or am I a tuning fork that's picking up on something? And like, am I picking up on the, on the energy? Like, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it now. Like when I hear the polluted woodpecker, 
Like, am, am I picking up on, on his energy? Is he, does he know that his environment is changing and that he doesn't have the type of environment that he used to have? Does he know that now he's more vulnerable? You know, you see the deer standing in the middle of the the cornfield. Now all the corn's been harvested this time of the year we're talking. And you see the deer out there, and, and they don't like to be vulnerable. You know, like they don't like to be out there just with no cover at all. They're always kind of on edge. And so is that just them, or is that a modified version of them? Like are they shaping and changing their emotions and their behavior now based on based on us? And I guess if so... Does it really matter? Does anybody really care? I don't know. I'm just, I just try to be an observer of everything. Mm -hmm. And and I want to pick up on, okay, everything is changing. Now, does nature know what's up to? Like, does nature know? Do, you know, you see the talk of like the bees that the bees are using the earth's magnetic field uh, to help them, to guide them. You see that the birds uh, for certain migration paths from Canada uh, down across, you know, we have a lot of sandhill cranes that come from Canada down across Kentucky, down south to Florida or Mexico area. Do they know that things are changing? Like when they look down, do you think they're really thinking about it? I mean, am, am I getting... Man, they have short, they have short lifespans, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. One of the... one when you hear arguments against hunting, like a lot of times people feel like sometimes I want to remind people like, Hey, these animals aren't going, if you don't hunt them, they don't live forever. It's like a deer is going to live three to seven years. That's a great in the wild. You know, they live a short life. So however, they are adapted to this environment or trying to adapt to this changing environment. So they were born into the world like you were. And so this is what's normal to the animals can live longer, right? Like a, it's possible for a bear to live into its twenties, you know? So some bears might have seen a lot of changes, but a lot of animals like this is the world they're in. And then there's this thing, I don't know if I can quite tie this together. There's a thing I always have to remind myself because I'll be talking about indigenous people who are living in portions of the world where they're still, like I was talking about before, uncontacted tribes. You know, this is a really, I just am fascinated by that idea that there are people who are still in the stone age on the earth. I mean, that's, that's really neat to me. It's given, incredible. Given, it's incredible, right? Now, I have to remind myself, because sometimes as a distinction, I'll refer to us as modern people. And then I have to remind myself, no, those are modern people. This is modern times. Those are modern t- people living modern lives. This is the modern world. It's not like they're in the past, right? They're right here with us right now on this same earth at this time. So it's not like um, it's... It, it's quite arrogant to say it like that, right? Well, it's like kind of similar to that. It's like the animals that are here, it's not like they're, yes, their bodies were built and adapted to an environment before people had made this much change, anthropomorphic change, but like, um, or not, that's not the word, anthropo, anthropo, what's, what do they call that? Like they call this the Anthropocene age, like the age where we've altered the earth. That's not necessarily what they're adapted to, but they're adapting to it just like we are. And this is the world they live in. So it's like, I don't think a deer really notices like, hey, oh, a soda can, you know, it's just a thing in its environment, just like an oak tree is a thing in its environment, right? So I feel like going back to what you just said, though, about tapping into that energy, like when you step into the woods and you sort of feel all this life around you and this like uh, internetworked, um, this like organized yet somewhat chaotic, you know, network of life. It's not that I, don't, I think it's less that you're tapping into it and more that you've been unplugged from it, 
right? It's like that the biological norm is to be part of it. Yes. We've like unplugged from it. And then when we go back, it's like, oh, wow, like feel that. And it's like, well, that's what you were never supposed to not feel that. Yeah. You yeah, know, that's the weird part. Like you, that's, that's us. Like in it is us. That's such a duh moment. It's like, duh, deer live like maybe seven if they're lucky. You, you just, you, you, you helped explain it better than I could explain. It. I was trying to explain what I feel, but you're right. It's not them. It's me. And last time we talked, you said something that kind of tripped me out too, which was how, when we go to the woods, now we're going as foreigners, like we've got mm-hmm. our Patagonia fluffy down jacket and we've got our thermal gloves and our, you know, we've got the gear. You've got to have gear now to get yeah, into more the and more elect- more and more electronics too, you know? Yeah. Even like, even if it's just a flashlight, like my flashlight now is an electronic flashlight, right? It's got a, you know, it's not like it's just a analog flashlight anymore. It's like everything is digital now. And so, yeah, we what what you're talking about is sort of this idea of we go into the woods like astronauts from another planet That's visiting it. a foreign a foreign planet, right? Like a foreign world. We act like and this is the this is why hunting, fishing and foraging. And for people listening to this who are like, "What hunting?" Like I, there's been such a campaign against hunting for so many years now, this Elmer Fudd kind of idea where media, hyper-liberal media that was uh, sort of, I really believe that liberalism and conservatism are there to balance one another. Like we should all have both of them in us. This idea that I'm one or the other is really weird to me. Like there's this, you need to conserve things or everything's lost and you need to be liberal or nothing new happens, right? But our media has leaned really far in one direction for a really long time and has had this agenda to erase a lot of traditional things. And one of those things has been hunting. And so they painted that, you know, that Bambi was an anti-hunting film. That was its purpose. Elmer Fudd was designed to paint a negative caricature of hunters, right? So a lot of people have this idea of hunting as this redneck activity, and they don't realize that it's actually like one of the deepest ways you can commune with the natural world because it's what we've done for three and a half million years as a genus. This is who we are, right? And so like our relationship to nature when we're just backpackers or hikers and we do the leave no trace thing is like we're in a museum and we're visitors from outside and we're seeing artifacts, but we can't touch them because they're too delicate. And so we get this sense of, well, now it's time to return home to my environment, which is the built environment. It's like, no, that's backwards. You're from nature. You're a human born on this planet. You're native to this planet. And what's foreign is the built environment. That's actually a new thing. It's very new. It's very foreign. And we are from the natural world. And Going out there and walking around and looking at it is more beneficial than having no time in it. But actually being a consumptive user, I think, is really important. Um, we are consumptive users of nature. Now, if you if you think like, oh, that's terrible, consuming parts of nature, it's like, well, guess what? You're doing that anyway. You just have like a thousand hands, sleight of hands between you and the act. So when you use your iPhone, you're consuming resources from strip mines, right? It's like... We are doing that. We are consuming from nature, but it feels removed. It's the same as like somebody who uh, was like, I could never kill an animal. But they tell you that while they're eating a hamburger and you're like, yeah, but – and they're like, no, I just couldn't do it myself. And it's like, well, okay, so you just have someone else doing it. It's like, oh, I don't like that idea of consuming nature. I like leave no trace when I go hiking. It's like, well, where do you think your clothes that you're wearing into the woods came from? Like they're coming out of nature. That stuff's all being derived from it. But just like the – you don't see the slaughterhouse, like you don't see the mines and the the um, the stripping of resources required to make 
the things that you wear into your leave no trace hiking trip. So the thing about the hunter, the fisher, the forager is they're put face to face. And and people who use consumptively from, you know, I try to remember too, it's like some people, it's like maybe they do like, you know, they work with wood or they work with herbs or whatever it is that, that brings them out into the natural world to consume a resource is they're put face to face with that. And I, and I just think a lot of us are so, um, divorced from it and so sheltered from it that we're like shocked by the idea that somebody would want to go out and and kill something or like take something out of the natural world because to us nature's this thing we've already destroyed so we have to leave it alone and my point you know we were talking about it earlier is actually the opposite you need to go out and take something from the nature from nature so that you have a stake in it so that you're a stakeholder in it because i'm a stakeholder in the natural world around me like this watershed that i live in I'm a stakeholder. If I find out something's going to go on here, I, I'm, I, have, I need to get my voice involved because I drink out of this watershed. I eat out of this food shed. So I'm heavily invested. But if all my food came from somewhere else, and I might just give money to the Audubon Society and think that that absolved me the way that you know back in Europe people would, would sin and then pay a credit, right? That's what drives me crazy about this idea of like carbon tax because I think all that – just that offsetting – it's like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm destroying this, but I offset it over here, so it's fine, right? It's like, no, it's actually not really. You need to get face-to-face with what you do. And people can criticize hunters for killing, but it's like, well, we actually see the blood on our hands. People I like think to that's be, powerful. It is powerful. People like to be removed, though, and I don't know why. I, I don't know if it – I mean, I guess there's a multitude of reasons. I don't, it's just weird that the brain wants to be removed. I would say your average person – wants to be removed from it rather than plant a seed which i did and grow a pumpkin and then make a pumpkin pie or have your pumpkin spice latte people don't even think about the pumpkin. a greyhound wants to run all a greyhound wants to do is run why Why? i don't know why the people why why does a greyhound want to run because it was bred to run yeah it was its stock was selected for that and after generations and generations, it goes from just a dog running into a dog made to run. And we are not who we were 500 years ago. We're the output of a heavy, heavy domestication. And so it's people wanting to be removed is like a greyhound wanting to run. It's we've been bred this way. We've bred ourselves to this now. So now you have to find the divergent individuals who have still this craving intact for the natural world because most people it's been bred right out of them and they don't until they have a meaningful experience they think that they're having more meaningful experiences in the social media environment in the technological environment in the built environment they think of those as meaningful experiences something that i i struggled to get this across well but it was put to me by arthur haynes the the botanist, I think you maybe have had him on your show before. Yes. Um, good friend of mine and, and somebody who's really, you know, somebody who, who I will never achieve in my lifetime, like his level of ecological knowledge and, and integrated awareness. Like I, as he started earlier than me in life and, and I think his IQ is higher than mine too. So I don't think I can really achieve what he's been able to accomplish in that regard. But, but I let he, he's taught me things that kind of sometimes bowl me over a little bit. And one of those things that he explained to me one time was that, the data richness of the natural world can't be replicated by people. So if you were to go stand out, let's say you took a a piece of nature the size of the room you're in, 
like the piece of woods the size of the room you're in, and you went out and you sat out in that, the complexity and richness of that can't be replicated in the built environment. So the number of interrelationships of leaves and blades of grass and of insects and of duff and of sand particles and dusts and pollens, and there's so much going on that any square inch of nature that you look at is so complicated and so rich that even when you go into you know, a great cathedral or you go into one of these like wonders of, of human engineering – like it pales in comparison in its complexity and richness, even oh. when we make it as rich as we can. Let me tell you something that, that might trip you out a little bit. So there's this guy, Dr. Diedrich Klinghart. He's a medical doc mm-hmm. from Germany. He does a lot of talks about Lyme disease. And, I know who you're talking about. Okay. So I don't know if it was when I was interviewing him or if I watched another interview he did or what, but he discussed that when someone is more toxic – especially with heavy metals, cadmium, lead, arsenic, mercury, etc. Those people were more interested in artificial environments. And, you know, I have the opportunity of working with hundreds of children and hundreds of adults. And I ask people on the intake form, when I work with these people, what are your hobbies or activities? And I kind of track what he says. I always plant it in the back of my head. And so when I see that I'm working with a seven-year-old kid and he was diagnosed with autism and I ask him or his mom, what is his favorite thing to do? When the answer is Disney World, I say, oh, my God, because then <laughs> yeah. because then we look at his heavy metal Detox. test result. <laughs> right. And his heavy metal test result is he's got mercury off the chart. He's got lead and arsenic off the chart. So I think he's on to something that, that uh, what is happening, you mentioned this breeding out and this domestication process. But what's happening at an, what, what's actually accelerating this? I I believe based on what he said and based on kind of the trends I'm seeing is that due to the toxicity of the environment where people are picking up the car exhaust sitting on the 405 in LA listening to us right now, they're breathing in cadmium and whatever else, that increase in toxicity actually further pulls the brain away from being interested in the natural environment. Now, are there Mm. people out there that are heavy metal toxic and they still love to go hunting? Yeah, probably so. But what if the very toxicity that's pulling us away from nature is what we need to fix to then get people back interested. It's almost like you're telling right. somebody, hey, I want you to go out for a hike. They're not interested in for a hike because their brain is so numb with the toxicity, they can't get the same pleasure receptors. They can't get the same dopamine hit from looking at a beautiful hemlock tree and the tiny little pine cones that are so just amazingly intricate they can't get pleasure from that because the brain receptors are so numb from the toxicity the endocrine disruptors the xenoestrogens the phthalates the pcbs the dioxins Mm -hmm. and until you fix that toxicity problem they can't get high from nature and maybe i'm using it wrong that's not what i intend but just for the sake of the conversation they can't get the buzz from nature to get hooked on it enough to continue to pursue it to conserve it to participate in it so it's almost like we almost have to do this thing in reverse order. It's almost like yeah. we can push people out there, but there almost has to be this if-then statement. Like if they are not toxic, if they are not too toxic, they may get enough benefit from the woods to go back and do it again versus you take a little seven-year-old kid and the mom says, hey, I take him to the park. He doesn't want to go for a hike. He just sits at the trailhead and just sits there with his arm crossed and says, I want to go home. I want to watch whatever. (laughs) 
Okay, but but now, all right. And this is not to throw a wrench into what you're saying, because okay. I I think what you're saying, I'm like I'm onto what you're saying there. I'm like I'm I'm liking that direction. I would say though that a lot of times, the walk for the sake of the walk, the hike for the sake of getting to the top, uh, the bike ride just to get back to the you know do the big circle loop back to the where your car is parked, that was a thing that I used to do. Um, you know, I live near the White Mountains of New Hampshire and Maine, and I used to hike into the mountains and go to mountaintops. That was like sort of an activity. It was like acquisition of mountaintops. Um, that got pretty boring after a while for me personally because I you'd put out all that work and you come back with nothing for it. Now if I go out in the woods and I come back with like food for a meal for my family or food for the, the whole year, um, that could be plants, that could be mushrooms, that could be seaweeds, that could be, you know, I'm not just talking about animals and hunting. I'm talking about that most of my time in nature, now it's hard. Sometimes my wife will be like, babe, let's just go canoeing. And it's like, can I bring a gun or a basket? Because I, I don't want to just go canoeing. I want to bring something back so that it makes that time, that investment of my time worth it. And so back to the kid, um, I think that sometimes, like when I see kids who've been raised up hunting and foraging or fishing, they, there's the dopamine loop is engaged because they can acquire something like it's like winning something. It's like, if you are successful, you come back with something that makes you want to go participate again. But if all you're doing is walking in just to turn around and walk out, it's kind of like with weightlifting, you know, sometimes where you're like, man, I just keep taking this heavy thing and picking it up. And then I just put it back down again and I pick it up and I put it back down again. That's different than I, I, pick up these things and I build a house out of it. Now I have a house. It's like, imagine if I like weightlifting. So this is not a criticism against it. It's just funny. The amount of lifting things up and putting them back down again, I've done over my life. I could have built a house out of bricks. Absolutely. Lots of houses, right? Most of most people who've exercised over their life. Imagine if all of that output was used to generate electricity, let's say for the grid, right? Instead of just, it's for nothing. You know what I mean? You do it for nothing. So when you expend those calories and then you bring calories home, and, you know, the thing is, is when you come home with a basket of cranberries or you come back with a, you know, a, a big maitake mushroom or you come back with a beautiful deer, it, there, people are also excited and they celebrate and everyone wants to see it. And you feel like, you know, it feels good. You get all of this like reinforcement. So I think like that's something that's missing for a lot of people. So I want to put that piece into what you're saying. And I want to add one more piece. I got really interested in um, the idea of death psychology and death avoidance. It's one of the things I explored at Rewild Yourself in that podcast. And I had introduced some, interviewed some folks who worked um, on a research project where they were looking at behavioral changes that happened when you introduced a death reminder. So what they would do is uh, show people pictures. Do you like this one or like this one? And if they had been reminded about death prior, they would have different results than if they hadn't been. One of those result changes was that people showed pictures of wild environments versus cultivated environments. So maybe it's like a picture of a garden or a picture of like vast wilderness. People would like the vast wilderness, but if they had been reminded of their own mortality first, they would typically like the man-made environment more. Uh, and that's another interesting thing because I think that when you're an active participant in ecology, death starts to become a pretty routine thing to you. But when you're living in the built environment, Everything is designed to avoid you ever having to come in contact with the death of anything. And I think what happens is you accumulate a fear of death over time and a fear of your own mortality, which you suppress deep, deep, deep in your subconscious so as not to deal with it, you know? And then 
it expresses itself in a fear of the wild world. I believe Just it. Just like the... I believe it. Sorry to interrupt you. If you want to keep riffing, please. But I want to tell you, when I shot my first deer, I cried. Mm-hmm. I was I was sitting in the blind, and I, I just, I, I didn't know who to thank for that. I, I had to thank someone, and I didn't know who. It was thank you, God. Thank you, trees. Thank mm-hmm. you, forest. Thank you, deer. Mm-hmm. Thank you, woods. Thank you, leaves. That, that Thank you, leaves that have the blood trail now. Like, mm-hmm. it was such an amazing experience. And I hate to compare things to to drugs uh but people relate to that because they've done them and they can they can know but it was i got high from my hunt oh yeah i got high from it after i shot that deer i could I, i swear to you my pupils had to be bigger for the rest of the day i was extremely (laughs) relaxed i was extremely relaxed i walked over to the doe and i had this just I've never experienced it in my whole life. It was this extremely at peace moment. It was mm-hmm. not. It was not sad. It wasn't sad. It, 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 I, I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel sad. I, I had so much brainwashing. You know, I didn't grow up hunting, just like you. You talk about that in your show. You didn't grow up hunting and fishing and foraging, and now you are. And I, I was not exposed to that. I grew up fishing, like on a lake, and then you throw the fish back in. But when you actually take the life of an animal. And you know that that animal is going to provide something for you. It's like, duh, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. How did I miss out on 20 plus years yeah. of my life not having this? Like, I feel like I was robbed and cheated. Right. And then I think of my kids, you know, I've got my daughter, Summer, she's three and a half. And I'm already asking her, hey, you want to go hunting with daddy? And she says, <laughs> and she says, yes. And then mom says, well, you know, she's going to sit in the blind with you for five minutes and then say she wants to go back inside. <laughs> right. I'm like, okay, maybe we'll wait till she's like five or something. Yeah, but yeah. I'm already trying to to plant the seed because the seed wasn't planted for me. And that's that's yeah. not the fault of anybody. It's just the way it turned out. But um, but then you see the depth of the experience. Like you, you, I think that was good what you were just saying because it's like very common for people to – well, most most people who've never hunted really get uh, pretty uh, turned off by the idea of trophy hunting, right? The idea of people who hunt just because they want to accumulate kills or accumulate some part of the animal or whatever. Um, and that's a really tough topic because there's a lot of people who – like I keep skulls of animals that I kill. Very often I, I keep them in a position of honor in my house and I – is that keeping a trophy? I guess, but that's not my, that's not what sets me out there, but I also like to do that. So it's not like there, it's not a super clean thing where it's like, well, this is trophy hunting and this is meat hunting. Cause a lot of times it's intermingled. Um, but a lot of people are like turned off by the idea of what they see in images too. Like they'll see a picture of a person, uh, you know, holding the deer head up and taking that big smiling photo. And I always try to tell people like, you're, you gotta understand the context of what this is because prior to this happening, that, like guy looking all tough holding that deer probably had tears in his eyes. Yeah. I'm not saying like weeping, right? I'm not like, oh, he was crying and weeping. But like most people I see when they take a shot, guys that I know, it's really interesting because you know this person pretty well and then you see this other side of them come out when they take that shot. There's this 20 seconds where they are the most vulnerable and the most um, just sort of bare, laid bare that I have ever seen them. And then – you know, that moment kind of passes and all right, it's like walk over to the animal and, and then, you know, you're just, it's pretty moving. Usually people are very like, I would love to see research done the way they're doing. Like for instance, with, um, psychedelic 
you know, medicines like you were talking about before, like there's a lot of good research now looking at the effect of um, psilocybin mushrooms on somebody's psychology long term and the benefits that can come out of that. It would be neat to have research done on people pre and post hunt who've never hunted and see what the impacts are. Because like you mentioned, there's this altered state that happens. But unlike drugs, it's a little different in that you come face to face with mortality. And I think especially if you're not somebody who drops the deer off at the butcher, but you, you decide to do some of that work yourself because you come face to face with everything that's inside your own body. And you just realize where you fit in, not just in like the food web, but like mortality you're like man i'm made of meat i'm made of these organs like this is a temporary thing i'm this suit that i'm wearing is temporary i'm only here for a limited time things die for me to live those are very powerful realizations that are hard to come by in other ways and i think their lasting psychological impacts are probably similar to somebody who does mdma in a clinical setting or does mushrooms in a clinical setting and then you know has these profound aha moments. Uh, I think hunting gives you that. And the thing is, is that not everybody through history was involved in psychedelic drugs, but everybody through history was involved in hunting, fishing, and foraging until so recently in human history as to make this current era be a blip on our timeline. This is, so it's not like, um, it's not like this new thing we found. It's who we are and we have abandoned it. And some of us are coming back to it, realizing that the benefits of doing it far outweigh whatever re- little rewards you get when you abandon it. Wow, that's well said. You say things, and then I like plant a seed, and then you just build off of it way more eloquently. That's why I always <laughs> love listening to your podcast, and I missed it when you when you when you quit your podcast. I was sad. I listened to not no, not every episode, but. I got to say, man, you honestly, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. I'm not just tooting your horn. You're honestly probably the single person and reason that I got into hunting because you and I were texting and you were motivating me. And you said, look, man, I I was like, what do I do? Like, like, do I go to a hunting class? Like, what do I do? I want to get involved. I love what you're talking about. How do I do this? I'm disconnected. I feel like I'm missing out on something. I want to be part of this again. This is my DNA. How do I do it? And you said, Evan, you got to find a mentor. I'm like, okay, what? Like, I think I might've even joked with you. Where do I go to Craigslist? Hey, I want a guy, you know, preferably who's been hunting deer for 20 plus years. Uh, I want him to sit in the blind with me. Um, he doesn't get to take the shot. I get to take the shot. And then he's going to help me pull out its guts and trim around the anus and do all that. <laughs> Where do I find that guy? And, and and I found him. And it was because of you pushing me. You said, you got to find a mentor. So I signed up for a hunting ed- a hunter education class. And it was a class in the wilderness. It was like a few hundred acre nature reserve. And it was about 20 people. And the head guy is one of my good friends now, Brian, who's a guy in his 50s who works for the Fish and Wildlife for the state. And he's been hunting his whole life and has hunted everything you could think of, sandhill crane and duck and deer and elk and everything. And he was willing to take me as his, you know, under his wing. And I got to become his his wingman and, and, and got my foot in the door. And now that I got my fo- foot in the door, I'm, I'm hooked and, I, and I'm still an extreme and beginner. And now it's a lot easier to figure out though. Like now you see, if you pick a species that you're interested in hunting or foraging or fishing, now you know how to, now you're better prepared to find somebody to open that door for you, right? Like in the beginning, it's very intimidating, but once you get going and you kind of understand the landscape a little bit, the, the, 
I mean the landscape of hunting, not the outdoors. Uh, once you kind of understand that world a little bit, it's really easy it is. to figure out. But it's just in the beginning. And, and you're right because a lot of people came to me and I said that to a lot of people. you got to find a mentor. And so many people – I had people get actually aggressive with me. I had one guy texting me like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? That is not helpful to me. Like how am I supposed to – you know, really mad. And I was like, OK, I, I need to say this differently for people. But there are all of these ways to find mentors now because the states are scrambling. Here's the thing that people don't get is with hunter numbers down as low as they are right now, there's not enough funding for wildlife research or conservation. So if you think that like animals are just, if we just leave them alone, they're just gonna be there. You need to understand it doesn't work like that. Not in this modern world. Because in this modern world, what's gonna end up being there is a Walmart, not deer. We, we, and it's not just as simple as, we'll just leave them alone. We need field biologists doing work. We need folks working on invasive and, and native species. We need folks making sure that habitat is intact. We need people who are doing the research, and that money comes from hunting licenses. So now the states are getting really good at figuring out how to get people involved. And there's these efforts underway, like this national program called R3, which means uh, recruit, retain, and reactivate. I'm involved with it here in my state where, um, you know, you need to recruit new people. You need to retain the people that get recruited into hunting and you need to reactivate the people who've kind of fallen out of it um, and create more opportunities. And one of the things you're seeing are these mentoring programs, which are really fantastic. So there's a lot of those now. And then you have like conservation groups like uh, I belong to one called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is a really great group. And they're always hosting, you know, local pint nights where you can come and meet people and get, you know, you find people to help you. Now, the thing is, is that people that do this are so passionate about sharing it. I mean, you've seen this now. I mean, it's like people who hunt, you get the occasional person who wants everything to be all private and secret, but most of them are so excited to take you out, to share with you, to show you their, I mean, I'm amazed how much people will show you their spots just because they're so excited that you care and are interested in this thing that they love. So there's a lot more access now. And then, you know, I guess I'm I'm in a lucky position because my podcast in my outreach means that I get opportunities that come my way that, that I got to remember like, okay, not everybody has like people reaching out and saying, Hey, you should come hunt here or whatever. That's an opportunity that I have. But I also locally, I don't have any of that. So on the internet, I have some notoriety that, you know, has come from the work I've done, but locally I don't have that. So, you know, a little town in Maine, no one cares that the people are like, what's a podcast? You know, no one cares about that. So I have, you know, like how I got into bear hunting, which is, I, I like more than probably any other hunting I do. It just keeps my passion for bears, man. I'm telling you, this, this they're a really special animal. And, and I happen to live in a place where the density is a very high. Uh, so And hunting opportunities are good because the states are trying to reduce the bear populations a little bit. And so, you know, we're in this heyday of bear hunting here. But the way I got started was I stopped a guy at a gas station who had all these stickers on his truck about it. And he had these hunting dogs with him. And, and uh, I just walked up to him and I said, man, I, I'm really interested in bear hunting. Can, is, is there some way I can get involved? And he was like pretty skeptical of me, you know. I did not look like I was from the world he's from. But he gave me a phone number and I followed it up. And I had to follow it up a few times. And before I – now I'm enmeshed in this culture of it. Uh, so sometimes you have to take a risk and it's kind of like if you're single and you're just trying to meet people, it's like, if you want to just walk up to somebody and, and start a conversation, it's scary and you get rejected sometimes, right? It's like that. Like, thank God I'm married now. I don't have to think about that kind of stuff, you know, but I know that that was like scary, right? 
it's like that. Like sometimes you got to approach somebody and it's scary and they might say no, or they might not want to help you. But a lot of the times they are going to. And uh, before you know it, you're sort of in. And once you're in, man, you see, like people just treat you really good. Oh, they're salt of the earth people. I mean, if you are someone who you're living in a city, you feel disconnected like every other person should feel. If they don't, they should. And you feel like you're losing hope in civilization. You know, this guy just cut you off. Beep, beep. You're going to honk the horn, flick him off. You're in traffic. Screw that guy. If you're like, hey, I don't like society. I don't like people. I feel this this vibe of big cities where people don't like people, and and they truly do. Yeah, yeah. They truly yeah. do, though. Listen, you take those people who say they don't like people, and you put them in the middle of a national forest inside of 50,000 acres of wilderness and put them by themselves for five days and tell me how much they love people when they come across <laughs> yeah. the first human. Yeah, it's true. So it's a good point. Yeah, that's really funny. So, so people only don't like people when they're around a bunch of people. But when you go out into the woods, a buddy Andy of mine, he told me he went into the Red River Gorge area in eastern Kentucky and he went for a five-day wilderness hike by himself. And he said that on like day four, day five, he started to question his sanity because he hadn't seen any sign of mm-hmm. life in terms of humans. And he sees somebody, he hears footsteps, and he was so excited to come across one human being. And, and, and that is an experience that, that most people can't relate to. We're surrounded by people so much that when we actually get away, we realize, wait, we, we are people people. That's, that's why we're successful because we're people people. We're social people. So if you're somebody who's like, I'm giving up, I'm shutting myself in my apartment, I'm pulling the blinds down, I'm just going to put on some Netflix and eat some popcorn, hopefully organic – then go out into <laughs> the woods. <laughs> go out into the woods. Find yourself a mentor. Without you, I consider you my distant mentor because you motivated me enough to get a, a a mentor here in my state, which has now connected me to this like almost underground network of people that know the spots. And yeah, you know, behind Gary's farm over there, he's got this pond, and that's where the teal duck come in. And then yeah, the Sandhill Crane, they're going to head down by the Barren River. It's like. Who knew the Sandhill Crane go down the Barren River? I didn't know that, and now I do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's it's even if you're not now participating, you live means there's more meaning, right? It's like that place means something different. It it was a spot over there before, maybe you never even thought about. Now, doesn't that spot where you know those cranes are hold this, this different significance? Like you you care about that place suddenly. Every like it, single it's time, it's a meaningful place to you now. There's a place down the road about maybe five miles away, uh, the, the crow flies. And when my wife and I first moved to this part of town, there were about a hundred cranes hanging out at this little, kind of like a floodplain right by the creek. And now every single time we drive past that, in my heart and in my soul, even though I know like it's not even Sandhill Crane migration time, I'm hoping and just searching there's going to be one gonna over be there one. in the field so I can just <laughs> yeah. see it and just celebrate right. it. So right. You look at a lot of indigenous names for places and their names will translate to like, place where the brook trout congregate or place where the sandhill cranes come you know like these places have names that that are related to people's consumptive use and those places take on meaning um i had a a reporter here from the boston globe the other day came up to do a story on me because of there's this renewed interest in and well in, in the idea of adult onset hunting and gathering this is something he wanted to do a story on so uh he was telling me about a book he's working on about um why adult men, middle-aged men, uh, so often don't have friends, don't have any real friends anymore. And, uh, it's a little bit different with women, I guess, in the research he was saying, women are a little bit better at forging these relationships. And so we were talking about that. And I was saying that in my experience, what forms the bonds for men 
a lot of times is a shared sort of risk and endeavor that leads to a successful acquisition. So when I hunt with other men, cause I, cause I was sort of somebody like that a lot. Of, I didn't really have a lot of friends. Like now there are men that I have these stories with, I and mean, I'm not excluding women from this. I mean, women are the biggest demographic growing demographic in hunting right now. And, and you know, ha- you pick up a hunting magazine and half of the ads are, are women. I mean, this is a huge growing demographic and women are getting so much out of hunting. I don't mean to try to make this a gender thing, but, but I've just noticed that the, the men that I have shared hunts with these stories bond us together. It reminds me a little bit of the friends that I've had who've gone to war because I notice they come home and the men that, that survive that war and they have relationships with, man, those bonds, even if those two don't have anything else in common, though that shared experience has bonded them together so strongly. So it's sort of similar in that the people I hunt with or somebody you might not like that much and then you go hunting with them and have a successful hunt and now it's like you have this shared story that you'll never forget. Neither of you will forget. You you know, a lot, especially if there's a lot of work involved. Like I, I met a guy recently, you know, and I, I, as a guide, I took him out um, and we ended up to get his bear, we had to hike seven miles. And we started in one state, came out of the woods in another state. And man, that story, the way that we're bonded by it now, even if we had nothing else to talk about, we'll just talk about that story. It's like, we're bonded on that. I think it renews your connection to other people. And another part of it, I think that is so big for me is the giving the gift of food to families. And it's not like any of these families don't have food. Everybody's got food now, right? I mean, we live in a very wealthy country, but um, that even our, our poorest folks in this country are living better than, than, you know, poverty level in a lot of places in the world. I mean, it's not, we're not short of food, but when you give that gift, give bear meat, you give deer meat, give fish, you give, I just sent a friend a, a jar of cranberry sauce that I just made, you know, out of maple syrup from my trees here and the cranberries we forged. You send that gift out to somebody, man, does that just remind you of the goodness of humanity when you start to share like that too. So that's a whole nother aspect is getting to be a provider for people feels amazing. I love that part of it. So that like misanthropic thing you were talking about before where you start to have this like cynicism about people. I feel like this is a, a piece for me, at least this has been kind of a bit of an antidote because I have a pretty cynical streak, but uh, man, it renews my faith in people and in the world and in the meaning of being alive. Cause I, I've never felt as alive as I do getting to participate in these things. And so uh, for me, it's been like very renewing and healing because, because of that, that misanthropic thing that's so common in the world you're talking about. Absolutely agree. Well, I believe it a hundred percent cause you look really good. Your skin looks good. <laughs> Thanks, uh, you, you're, you're like your skin tone looks good. Like your face <laughs> is, your complexion is clear. Like your hair looks nice and burly and strong and like it's full of <laughs> nutrients. Like you don't need any hair, skin, nail supplements. Like you just, no. you're, you're, you're full of it's nutrients, happening. man. So it's, happen- it's happening out there, man. And you see too, like, I just want to add this piece too, because you've watched a, a, several of the episodes of wild fed, the, the video show, um, you, the characters that are, that are helping us along the way. Man, are they not the nicest people? They're like, so fun. Oh, let me tell you this. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we were talking about kids earlier and the whole disconnected thing. I got to say, one of my favorite parts of the series was watching the little boy uh, bring over the baby uh, alligator. Alligator. Yes. Yeah. And, and the way he handled Albert. it, and, and, and then and then he just like took off with it. Like after he showed it to you, like, oh, yeah. beautiful guy. And he just took off. I thought, what a cool kid just, just yeah. handling a little wild alligator what an awesome kid he's got his own youtube channel albert's outdoors he's a cool dude sweet yeah we've got kids um 
there's a great scene with Arthur's daughter, Arthur's daughter, uh, Samara, in episode eight, the last episode of the show. You know that, as you saw, the show kind of starts in the spring, and then the episodes go through until they end in the winter, right? So we do the seasonal arc. So the last episode of season one, we're out ice fishing. And seeing Samara when the fish comes out of the water and her talking about the prayers that she did and, you know, how her prayers were answered. And you just seeing like, this is what I love about it, man. It's like kids, it's men, it's women, it's it's families. It's just, I really love like the multi-generational, everybody, the, the gathering of food from our environment is so innate in us that everybody lights up about it. Everybody yes. gets excited about it. I was hunting last week with a guy who is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, right? And then I hunt with people who have nothing. It's like this thing will tie to get everybody, every race, every class. Like what I love about it is no matter who you are, your people were foragers and you were foragers, like everybody. And this time, these times we're in right now, I mentioned it before, it's kind of like a, a cold civil war. Like I grew up in the Cold War, right? With Russia and the United States, the superpowers in a Cold War. Well, now we're in a cold civil war in the United States. At least I would define it as such. Uh, and all so much talk about what divides us. And it's so nauseating all the time because it's like all this talk about race, all this talk about gender, all this talk about sexual orientations and, and, and people's identities and all this. It's like sometimes it's like, man, we are all people. Like we're bound together by things, our shared way, our shared life way, our shared life history, our shared natural history as humans. And I love getting back to this fundamental thing. this like sharing because I've been able to share this with everybody. It doesn't matter. It's not a, it doesn't matter what your affiliations are, your identity is. It's like you can, this is what we all did. This it all, it all disappears. Any label, any tattoo, anything, it, it all disappears when you're in the woods. Man, we could talk for hours, but my bladder's full, so we gotta... <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tie a bow on it. So, so we gotta wrap this thing up, but please tell us about your show. When is it uh, officially launching? How can people access it? How can people purchase it? How can they support your mission? And how can they spread the word, of course? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity, man. Well, if you go over to wild-fed.com, that's the website, and you can see the trailer for the season. And then if you click on the – there's a big banner at the top for season one of the show. If you click on that, you can actually see trailers for all eight episodes of the show. So those are like the the little sort of cold opens to each episode. So you can get a sense of what the season's like. Um, and the way you can get that is um, we're doing a pre-release of it right now. So you can pre-order the show or you can join the program that I'm doing. And what we're going to be doing starting January 6th is delivering episodes to people one a week. So I'm not doing it Netflix style like, hey, binge it all in one day. I'm going to give you one episode a week for eight weeks starting on January. So people are buying that right now. Lots of people coming on board, buying the season. It's 49 bucks. And then if you're like wanting to get more involved, I set up a program that's going to run concurrent with that. So that's 249 bucks. And what it is is like you get the show, uh, the video show, but you also get – extra Q&As, director's cuts and all these extras and a member group. And what I'm going to be doing there is helping people kind of figure out how to get started with this and guiding people through the process. You know, I'm definitely not the expert, but I'm a pretty good guide. And my goal is to sort of walk you through this thing and finding an inroad so you can get started hunting, fishing, foraging, whatever aspect of the wild food lifestyle you might be interested in. Or you can just see the show again, it's like 49 bucks. Um, and then they can check me out on Instagram. That's the place where I'm the most active. So if you're wanting to like actually get in touch with me personally, at Daniel Vitalis on Instagram is where I am the most engaged in social media stuff. 
Um, and uh, you can find the Wild Fed on uh, Instagram as well. And then um, going over to, uh, like I said, to our Facebook, any of that stuff, you know how it is. But our, our website, it'd be the place to see the trailers to the show, get a sense of it. And of course, we have the podcast now too, which launched just last week. And I've just putting up the fourth episode tomorrow. So podcast is back in action, the Wild Fed podcast. I'm going to check out the episode with the the bear biologist. I'm super pumped. I saw you posted it because you had launched with like a couple episodes from launch. I just haven't had, yeah. I just haven't found oh, a minute man, to download good. it. So she's I'm awesome. Pumped. She she's awesome. She's done everything from you know the bear works here in Maine over to, she worked with black bears in uh, in New Mexico. She's worked with grizzlies up in Alaska. So the podcast is cool because I I get to do long form stuff with biologists, with wardens, with chefs, and 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 foragers and hunters, and so it's a really cool place just if you want to kind of like build your ecological literacy that's a good place to do it um, but I do hope people check out the video show I'm really proud of it man I mean it, you know after having pitched shows to all the big networks in LA and and having you know come very close to some deals with Discovery Channel and Animal Planet and Nat Geo and kind of walking away from all of it when I realized like this was never going to give me the opportunity to do what I really wanted to do they weren't going to let me make what I really wanted to make Getting to make this show on my own, self-produce it, has been an awesome, awesome opportunity. And so I'm almost done with the second season now. We're going to keep making this show. I'm real proud of it. But I don't have that you know, big platform or network support. So um, that's why we're asking people to go over to wild-fed.com and purchase the show. Like I said, it's 49 bucks or 249 for the program. Uh, and here's the thing. If you use the coupon code GATHER, all one word, it's 10% off. So if you're interested in doing that, Use that coupon code, get coupon code gather, and uh, we'll give you a little discount. Sweet, you're the man. I mean, just the time alone with you was worth at least like five hundred to a thousand bucks for this hour. <laughs> Dude, so, so I think the I think the fifty bucks is worth it. Please support Daniel. You know, we've got you know d- depending on the episode if people are like ooh this topic's amazing you know we may get 30 45 50,000 downloads so you know i hope at least 10% of you guys um buy it you know daniel's somebody who i look up to and although we don't get to see each other in person uh you know i, I love to to live through him and, and watching the show uh i mean I-, I binged on him because he gave me access and i had to hurry up and watch him all so i had or, or watch as many as i could um so we could talk about it and the production quality was just amazing so uh i i felt like i was right there i mean the part where you go to to shoot the turkey and i won't get, do too many spoilers but but just the raw emotion of uh of, of what <laughs> happened was great yeah. i was like i'm glad he's like not cutting this out because this is something that that happens and people like maybe cover that up in some of the, the oh you more, gotta we wanted to keep it real. i want to ask you this too like yeah. i know you gotta i know you gotta go here in a second but but i just wanted to get your feedback on the overall tone of the show because having seen a lot of hunting and fishing shows in the past i've never never really liked the tone of them i guess you know how and what do you mean do you mean that it sometimes was sometimes like, they're a little too like rock and roll like too party sometimes yeah. they're like they're not reverent very reverent I, so the tone of the show i tried it with the music and the way we shot it sometimes it's upbeat sometimes it's funny sometimes it's real serious or real emotional and overall just kind of curious how it landed for you the tone was yeah i mean if if you wouldn't have asked i would have forgot to mention it the tone was probably my favorite part of it because you're such an eloquent speaker and so each episode you're imprinting your love you can just feel your love and your passion and your compassion for the animals and for the land and one of the scenes specifically that hit the tone perfectly for the whole show was after you got your turkeys and you put them into the into the back of the vehicle and there was just like 
it felt super long. It felt super long. It was maybe five to 10 seconds, but it felt so long because it was either silence or just very light music. And it was just kind of you, just kind of hanging out by the view. I know, I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and there was no words. Nobody was talking. There was nothing. There was just this free space. And that's what you did good is you gave sp- free space for someone to breathe and think about how they feel versus the other shows. It's like, duh, 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 throw them in the truck, vroom, and the F-150 Raptor drives away. <laughs> um, it wasn't that. It, it gave me a moment to reflect on, Wow this is a great experience he just had and he shared that with me so the tone was by far the best point i haven't seen a a a hunting show that captured the tone as well as you while you the thing you're always good at is you're good at implanting ideas into people's heads without them knowing that you're doing it meaning (laughs) by the time i watched that even if i didn't already have the compassion i had for the hunting and the land and all that it's almost like, wow, I have this new sense of compassion for, for turkeys. Even though I already love turkeys so much, I love them even more. And Daniel didn't tell me, you all need to watch turkeys or you suck. Or you all need to love turkeys or you <laughs> suck. You didn't say that. But just participating in the experience, you come away loving everything that you love just as much. So it felt like we were just hanging out with you. And we, uh, through osmosis, we picked up on the love and the empathy and the compassion. So uh, I, I just, I want to say thank you really, because you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to bring this dude along. I was thinking like, okay, is he messing up the hunt? Like, what if that guy, you know, what if he like, didn't like smell proof himself? Is his smell going to mess up Daniel's hunt and Daniel's sacrificing his hunt just to have a camera behind his butt? You know, like it was great. So I just want to say thank you, man. <laughs> dude, thank you. Oh, that was, I wasn't expecting that. Hey, I really, I really appreciate that. Thanks for sharing this platform with me, man. Thanks for letting me talk to your people. And, um, I just really appreciate everybody listening and, and thanks for letting me share this passion. So, uh, Hey, and I'm, I want to get down there and hunt with you. So, um, I plan on getting down hopefully next year. So uh, let's let's make sure that we get some time together. We should. And, we and should. I'm interested in this Sandhill Crane thing, man. So let me know what you get figured out. Uh, yeah, if, if it happens, I'll be sending you a picture. I don't know if I could send Please. you some meat. I don't know how much meat I'm no, going to no, get. No, just, you know I'm just I mean? saying, no, I'm just saying figure out the hunt because I want to come down there and participate at some point. Oh, you you'll know, get so. picked. You'll get picked. It's like everybody who, who, who puts in the lottery, 500 people did it. 500 people got tags this year. Uh, okay, cool. So you got to figure out the, the strategy and then I'll come down and we'll, we'll do some Sandhill Crane. That's the hard part, the strategy. Because yeah. well, when are they going to land? Where are they going to land? Nobody knows. We have an idea. <laughs> we have an idea, but, but you never know. Well, man, thank you so much. Uh, p- please go check out wild-fed.com. Go buy Daniel's videos. They're awesome. Even if you don't care about hunting, you think you don't even care about hunting, I want to hear about like gut health and parasites and probiotics. Just go watch it and then tell me that you didn't enjoy it. So, Daniel, thanks <laughs> thank so much. You. All right, brother. Take Talk care. to you soon. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and I'm serious. I think you'll enjoy Wildfed. I would go pay the 50 bucks, and uh, you can use that coupon he gave you, gather at checkout, and save a little bit of money. I mean, I'm happy to pay full price for it. I love it. I'm very grateful that I was able to see these episodes before they came out, too. So uh, they will be launching very, very soon, but if you want to support him in his mission, then there's the website that you have. And check him out. Go support him. He posts some really good information. if you're into Instagram, I'm not too much into Instagram. Maybe I'll change, but I'm not too much into it. But one thing I do like to use Instagram for is to check out Daniel's post because he always does a great job of uh, posting various pictures with different animals and telling the story and the connection of how we got the animal and the hunt that led up to it and all that. So really, really cool. I will let you go, but if you do want to reach out clinically and get help with me, uh, I work 
with people around the world uh, every day. So whether it's a gut issue, a mood issue, you know, anxiety, depression issues, you've got mold exposure, you've got tick bites, you know, whatever it is, um, there's a full list of conditions, kind of the main things I work on that you can check out at my site, evanbrand.com. Just go to the bottom, click on conditions. And then if you want to reach out, you can schedule that 15-minute free call with my staff. Uh, we'll speak with you about your health symptoms and your goals and determine if we can help you. So that's all at my site. Check it out and review the podcast, please. I would love your story. What do you think of the show? And how do you do that? Well, if you're on iPhone, that's the easiest way. On your podcast app, you should be able to just click right there on my on my face and on my podcast artwork. And then you should be able to see the leave a review button. And you can hit that and give me the stars that you think the show deserves and then write your, write your little blurb. Love reading those uh, reviews. That's kind of my oxygen to keep the show going. So I would love uh, in advance. Thank you so much for doing that. All right, take care. I'll be talking with you again next week. See you later. Bye.